Over the past few years, tacos have risen from humble street food and Americanized fast food to trendy options at a growing number of restaurants. A staple of Mexican cuisine, they have been adopted by different cultures and even show up on brunch and dessert menus. There's no doubt that tacos are more popular than ever, but what about the craft and tradition that goes into making a fresh taco? On this week's Please Explain, chef and restaurant owner Alex Stupak and food writer Jordana Rothman, authors of Tacos, Recipes and Provocations, will tell us how to make the best homemade tortillas, salsas, moles, as well as traditional and modern fillings. And we invite you, our listeners, to join in the conversation. You can give us a call at 212-433-9692. Write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And I uh, I think that maybe we should begin with the thing that most Mexicans and people who have spent time there bring up when we talk about Mexican food in the United States. Authenticity. Is that a concern for either of you? Um it's a huge concern. Anytime anyone talks about Mexican cooking or tacos, that, that word comes up, authentic or traditional. I have an interesting take on it, whereas I actually think that word is what holds the cuisine back. And sometimes I think people who are overly concerned about authenticity are the ones that are keeping the cuisine sort of locked up. And when you really look at it, authentic is an ironic word because I think the greatness of the cuisine comes from rad- radicalization. And nobody really questions a taco in a Korean restaurant, and we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, That isn't part of Korean food tradition, is it? Is Um, that something that just was adopted? I mean, every culture sort of has its uh, food stuff that is something wrapped in something else. Um, You know, Jewish culture has blintzes, and there's all manner of crepes across the culinary universe. But Yeah, exactly. Um, Or palmeni, things like that. So um, that exists everywhere. And I think for that reason, the taco is a really ripe canvas for other cultures to kind of explore inside of their own culinary vernacular. Um, But authenticity in general is something that's a a huge trigger for both of us. And that's definitely the thing that we've defended the most around the book, because uh, there's this idea that Mexican food is done evolving and it's finished, and it has to be measured against some some notion of what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed to cost, and uh, but that you know it's a gigantic country with a lot of regional diversity, and so that idea that it's a fixed and rigid thing is sort of a a, a little bit absurd. You mean regional diversity in Mexico because Mexico has so many different regions and, and so many different cultures. Absolutely, I mean there's you know what somebody from Puebla considers to be authentic Mexican food and what somebody from Veracruz would consider to be authentic Mexican is wildly different. Not to mention, you know, someone from Southern California or San Francisco or New York City. Although Mexicans will tell you that Calmex and Tex-Mex is not really Mexican food. Well, they'll also tell you that someone from Oaxaca will tell you that there's no such thing as Mexican food. There's only Oaxacan food. And someone from Veracruz will say that's that's Mexican food. Alex, you describe yourself as a white boy from suburban Massachusetts where (laughs) old El Paso taco nights were mother's milk. How did uh, your idea of tacos change when you moved to Chicago, which has a fairly large Mexican population? Um, it, It started for me with the tortilla. Um, The first time I actually had a a real quote-unquote tortilla, and I'll define real by one made of corn masa that was cooked on the kamal and handed to me immediately. I I mean, the the flavors and the textures were so epiphanal for me that I realized that there was a whole world that I didn't know about. It's like when you go to Paris for the first time and have a baguette, 
and you realize you never had one. It, that was the game changer for me. And your mother-in-law is Mexican. Did you and your wife uh, wind up uh, cooking Mexican foods at home? So, um, yes. My, my wife, who's Mexican-American, she grew up with great, I'll call it California-style Mexican cooking. And that was a huge portal for me as well. And it just over time, it got to the point where that's in my spare time and at home, that's all I was eating. Now, Mexican food has often been described as cheap. What's led to those labels? For many years, in fact, in New York, before we started seeing the real thing, uh, Mexican food meant steam tables. I mean, there is still very much. There's an entire um, subsection of tacos called tacos guisados, which are basically stews that just sort of heat in their own, their braises that stay hot all day and you just sort of scoop into a tortilla. Um, but the idea that Mexican food needs to be cheap is definitely one of the things. I'll definitely let Alex speak specifically to what it is like to run a restaurant in New York City that serves a cuisine that is commonly thought to be a cheap eats cuisine. But when you are applying the same um, methodologies of sourcing and staffing and um, you know the real estate concerns of living in New York City, it completely changes the game. And I think that for some reason there's this vast amnesia that takes place when people come into your restaurants. Do you think that's true? I do. Um, it's problematic on, on both sides because you have to understand in Mexico, the idea of eating in a Mexican restaurant is daunting to a lot of people because one, it's either something that only my mother could get right so I'm going to eat it in my home, or it's something that I'm going to eat at the best street stall ever. And those things are both generally very inexpensive, and they're awesome. On on this side so of the- So is that a pressure on you when you have a, a Mexican restaurant? People just assume that everything's going to be really cheap, but well, you still have to buy expensive ingredients. A hundred percent. And I'll, I won't even just talk specifically about Mexican. I'll talk about a certain class of cuisines that we call ethnic food, which is a little weird to me because- Let's talk about what it really is. It's it's Thai, it's Indian, it's Mexican, it's Chinese, where I don't understand how that's less ethnic than Eurocentric cuisines. So it really comes down to our view, our socioeconomic view of immigrant classes that have come to America, and we sort of keep this all in this takeout styrofoam box mentality. When When you actually look at the cuisines technically, they're, well, I'm not going to argue that they're equal to Eurocentric cuisines. In my stance, I'm going to say greater than. A, a Chinese restaurant owner complained to me once that abalone costs him just as much uh, as it costs somebody at a fancy restaurant, but when people want to order it at his restaurant, they expect to pay a lot less. We we have a few tacos in the book that we developed pretty much expressly for the purpose of turning that idea on its head. I mean, we have an uni taco in the book that is <laughs> calls for like an entire tray of uni. Uh, we actually had one taco that we ended up taking out that was just a tin of caviar and... <laughs> It was just full of crema and caviar and pars- like parsley stems or but something. But they, they wouldn't use caviar in Mexico. They'd use escamoles. Escamoles, sure. And that's why we pulled that because it was it was just a little bit too finger-pointing for us, and it actually didn't link back to that cuisine and, and the eatability of it. Now, Jordana, Americanized Mexican food gives people the impression that it's all dense burritos filled with meat and greasy cheese quesadillas, but you've included a lot of vegetables and vegan taco recipes in this book. Did Mexico have, as you write, a borderline vegan cuisine before the Europeans actually came? That's absolutely true to our research. Um, In terms of what we found, the sort of ancient Aztec diet to be basically runner beans on a tortilla, 
uh, made with nixtamalized corn, and that essentially supported that civilization for thousands of years. Um, and and even still today, we tend to, as Americans, think of the cuisine as being very pork heavy, um, but. Uh, our research sort of shows there that were actually no pigs in Mexico before the domesticated Europeans came. pigs. In, in, indeed, they came in the in the hulls of conquistador ships, and and uh, even today, there's a tremendous vegetable culture in the in the cuisine of Mexico, and it's not so much an ideological thing as it is a matter of it's a, it, in some cases is the cuisine of poverty, and so you're using meats to sort of stretch the flavor rather than be the center of the plate. But it's also a fusion cuisine, and not just Spanish and the indigenous peoples, but uh, you see French influences, you see English influences, you see influences from the United States. Absolutely. I mean, if you go to the anywhere in, in the Yucatan to this day, you're going to find queso relleno, which is stuffed Edam cheese. And that came from Hennequin trade with the Dutch. But again, that is a traditional Yucatecan dish. I love that dish. They cut the cheese down the middle, fill it up with stuff, and then bake it, and then serve slices. It's so awesome. And another thing, my, my favorite taco of all time, tacos al pastor, mm-hmm. right, which is spit-roasted pork, um, usually with a bit of pineapple, which al pastor means pasture style, which means shepherd style, which means lamb. And it's pork cooked in the style of lamb shawarma, which came from a Lebanese influx. Mm-hmm. And there were no pineapples in Mexico before the Colombian exchange. Sure. There was also no tomatoes in Italy, and there were no mm-hmm. chilies in Thailand. Uh, or I mean, chocolate in Europe, yeah. or vanilla, or potatoes. And, and that's what's so interesting. I mean, you use the word fusion, and that's definitely a big, that's a trigger word when you're talking to food writers and chefs. But I think that, um, you know, some of the most interesting cuisines in the world are the result of this indigenous fusion, where one culture sets up shop in another and tries to express itself and its heritage and its food ways with the ingredients that are available to them. So um, how does that apply when you open up a restaurant like Empion Taqueria? Um I've I've had the good fortune to cook food here in New York City, and I've also been blessed to be able to cook food in Mexico. It really comes down to who are you cooking for? Because I cook Mexican cuisine differently than if I'm visiting Oaxaca than if I'm cooking it for cosmopolitan Manhattan. And, I mean, I, I say that— That's because we're more ignorant of what it should I don't be think, like? No, I, I don't think it's ignorant at all. I think it's just more of the restaurant culture here and what you expect when you walk into it. So— New York City, whether anyone likes to admit it or not, is still very much a steak tartare town. It's a shrimp cocktail town. It's a pizza town. So we, I, I might make steak tartare here in New York City, but I might give it those flavors from Mexico. I might use Oaxacan chilies in it. That's not. That doesn't. I don't know what it makes it. It definitely makes it Mexican inspired, but it doesn't make it something that you can necessarily find a version of in Mexico. One of the hottest new restaurants in New York is um, has just been opened by. The chef of Pujol in Mexico City, which has been uh, voted one of the 25 best restaurants in the world. The big difference is I think uh, a meal at Pujol in Mexico City will cost you $100 with wine, and you'll have great food, and uh, it's a lot more expensive here. Uh, so is is that a consideration uh, just because New York is so much more expensive? Would that affect the way you would put together a menu? It's a tremendous factor. Um, I mean, at the end of the day— I mean, New York City rents are the equivalent of water bills in, in other cities. Um, cost of labor is higher. And again, it's it's about also what do people want to eat. So, and that comes from a, an issue of reference point. So at Pujol, Enrique will um, pull something very obscure to us, but will be very relevant to his clientele there. Whereas here, it's it's something else. He's going to take burrata 
and apply Mexican flavors to it because people have a reference point for burrata. Trinana, do tacos have to have a certain kind of filling to be called a taco? Burritos, for example, can be filled with rice, but uh, I don't think I've ever seen rice in a taco. <laughs> uh, I yeah, have. yeah. I mean, we make we have a sopa seca taco in in the book, which is essentially like a, a dry noodle taco, which is a very interesting textual experience. Actually, we do the um, rice, the rice. Um, Putting one, yeah. I mean, well. a tradi- and again, that's the cool thing about Mexican cooking is that you can never cease to keep discovering. So tacos placeros, plaza tacos, that's um, rice on a tortilla with a couple hard boiled eggs, and it's like the even as far as tacos, inexpensive tacos go in Mexico, it's the it's the cheapest of those, and they're super tasty. Um, that's what keeps me coming back to the cuisine, where it's like if you say you've run out of inspiration looking to that part of the world, um, you you're you're lying. You just stopped looking because you can never cease to keep discovering. So the trick is uh, whatever you got in the house, if you have good tortillas, you can make a good taco? I don't think there are really rules. I mean, I think that the, you know, we designed the book and I know that the way that Alex thinks as a chef and the way that I think, the way that I think it is, as a writer is to sort of open a creative window and see what else comes flying through when you try to execute one single recipe. Ultimately, it's a um, it's a vehicle for delivering food to mouth, and um, I think that you can go about that a lot th- of ways. I think we tried really hard, too, though, to not embrace willy-nilly fusion and mm-hmm. let's not just simply put Korean food on a tortilla and see where that nets out. We tried to mind map our way back to um, something, some reference point from Mexico. After mm-hmm. we take a little break, we'll come back and talk about some of the ingredients that you use to, to give these foods a real sense of Mexico. But I'm going to slip in a call here from David from Glen Ridge, New Jersey. Hi, David. You're on the air. Hey, great to talk to you. Go ahead. Are you guys familiar with this new book out? I think it's fairly new called Tacopedia. Yes. Yes. It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> well, they're, pro- they're promoting their own book. Huh? They're, t- they're trying to promote their own book. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Uh, but, you know, it... Uh, my point, well, do, well, uh, so well, do you were... agree that the other book is much better than your book? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll why even write a book at all? <laughs> um, the the idea of authenticity, it, it just seems like when you're talking about a taco, people uh, prescribe these rules to them, corn tortillas, you know, no cheese, um, flour tor- no flour tortillas. But after reading this book, it, it's just, there's all that stuff in Mexico. It's just, you know, so regional. Mexico is huge. And um, even when you talk to Mexicans about what makes a, a taco or whatever, they seem to be talking about mainly their experience and not the entire country. In fact, it's been pointed out that after China, Mexico has the greatest numbers number of recipes. But I had an experience in a border town, Agua Prieto, uh, where... Um, I was in a restaurant, and I was asked, do you want flour tortillas or corn tortillas? And I said, corn, of course. And then learned that the flour tortillas were made fresh in that town, where the corn tortillas were bought from from the supermarket, in fact. We were very excited to discover that flour tortillas do have this traditional foothold in Mexico because in the northern regions where wheat grows more easily than corn because it's a more arid climate – it's a huge part of the culture there, and they can be quite delicious. I mean, we absolutely love to eat them. They're also a little bit hardier. They can survive. Um, you can cook them, and they can cool down a little bit, and you can sort of reheat them, whereas corn tortillas, it's a little bit tougher to do that with. Um, but to his question or his point, you know, Tacopita is 
an example of a book that um, is sort of archiving the state of tacos. Um, and we wrote a very different book. And of course, there's room for all of it. I mean, we're, we've been very inspired by other writers in the same space, like Diana Kennedy, who we look at as a reference authority. And we are doing something different. So it's not so much about um, documenting exactly what is out there, but taking a look at what's out there and trying to synthesize it and use it as a creative threshold for for both of us. We're talking about tacos on today's Please Explain with Jordana Rothman and Alex Stupak. Their book is called Tacos, Recipes, and Provocations. It's published by Clarkson Potter. We'll continue our conversation. Invite your calls at 212-433-9692. That's 212-433-WNYC. Or you can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And we are back with a discussion of tacos on today's Please Explain with Alex Stupak and Jordana Rothman. Uh, they've written a book called Tacos, Recipes, and Provocations, published by Clarkson Potter. And we're inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Ken from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just wondering what your guests would have to say about wheat lacoche. What, um, what do they have to say about it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. You um, want to explain? What we, this, so in America, it's called corn smut? Sure. I, I, I think wheat lacoche is a much prettier name. Um, uh, I'm a big fan. It's, um, it's difficult to get fresh. Um, there's only one place I've ever been able to get it fresh, which is Burns Farm in Florida, and it's a very short season. A lot of people who grow corn aren't willing to grow it um, because they don't want to get sued. Because if you grow wheat lacoche, you can't really control the spores, and they could attack the, the crop of your corn farmer next door, and then you could get sued. Um, if you can get a hold of it in season, I think it's great. Um, if you can buy it frozen, um, still very good. We do use it frozen. And and where can you get something like wheat lacoche? It's called the... The uh, the Mexican uh, truffle, truffle, which I disagree. I mean, it, it still doesn't ha- really taste like a truffle. No, I think it it has it tastes like corn, of course, but it also has this um, uh, compelling sort of licorice saccharin like quality about it, almost sort of like a mushroom pheromone. I can't describe it any other way. Um, I if you can get your hands on it fresh or frozen, I recommend it. I don't recommend buying the the jarred stuff because it's like kind of buying. A, Where can you get it frozen? Um, I get it. Um, there's a little store in uh, Alphabet City called SOS Chefs, and they sell it, um, and it's it's really good stuff. Okay, thank you for calling us, Ken. Uh, Arun from Scotch Plains, New Jersey. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for uh, taking my question here. Um, so, you know, I, gr- I grew up in California eating a lot of Mexican food, uh, but we also ate crispy tacos there, and... Um, you know, it's unfortunate that crispy tacos get such a, a bad rap. Are you I talking think. about hard shell tacos? Yeah, right, hard shell tacos. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever seen those in your travels in Mexico. Sure. Uh, I had in, 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 in Puerto Vallarta and some western towns. Um, but, you know, I just want to get your thoughts there and, and if you, you think that would ever kind of catch a hold here as well. Oh, absolutely. First and foremost, I think Americans' favorite flavor is crunchy. Um, so I, I think it has a big foothold. I mean, um, to me... There's a class of tacos called tacos dorados, meaning that the the shell has been somehow fried crisp. I, I think um, most fondly of flautas, you know, those long sort of rolled up flute-shaped tacos that have a copious amount of salsa and crema and lettuce. We actually do a play on that in our tasting menu at the restaurant right now. 
Um, I'm a big fan, and I'm not a fan of people who generally tend to disregard a certain thing in Mexican as if they, you know, I, I think people talk too much in these totalitarian terms. But the the uh, the hard shell tacos that I uh, uh, am imagining are the ones you get at place like Taco Bell. Are you talking like the crispy U shaped yeah. things? Um, look, I, I look, I, I think that there's great versions and bad versions of everything, and whether it's authentic or inauthentic, I think that matters less so long as it's being respectful of an idea. And you can't tell me that a great piece of corn fried crisp with a delicious filling could be bad. Okay. What about chilies? Because there's just such a wide range. How do Americans learn how to, to work with all the different chilies, the, the, the fresh ones, the, the dried ones, the smoked ones? Well, generally when we were deciding what kind of chilies to focus on in the book, we our metric was essentially if we've ever seen it at Whole Foods, then it's fair game, uh, more or less, or if we could sort of easily order it on the Internet. There are definitely chilies that are out of reach for the average American shopper. Um, but thankfully, we live in a time when that's actually less and less the case. Um, working with them is sort of a muscle memory development. You know, when you're working with a dried chili, you'll often toast it in a cast iron skillet and then soak it for about 30 minutes and then drain it and then puree it or you'll cook it down so it's like a more concentrated version of itself. When you're working with a fresh chili, you might, well, you might eat it fresh or you might you know want to char it to develop some of its flavor. Something like a poblano, you might want to char and then peel. Um, but generally speaking, you kind of uh, develop a sensibility about how each category of ingredients likes to be handled. And once you do that, there's a lot of room for experimentation. What gives them their heat? Well, uh, it's mostly concentrated. It's actually called the placenta. Um, and the placenta, when you cut open uh, fresh or a dried chili, but you can see it a little bit more easily in the larger fresh chilies. Even in a bell pepper, you can see when you slice it open, that sort of white vein that has all of the seeds clinging to it, that is the plant placenta. That's where so, the greatest concentration of capsaicin is. Mm -hmm. so, which is what gives it the heat. Yes. So oh. if you want to get rid of, let's say you're buying a, a jalapeno, if you want to get rid of the heat but still get a little bit of a, a warm glow, you get rid of the seeds and that white vein. And there'll just be well, something yeah. there nonetheless? To a certain extent. I mean, there are certain chilies that don't respond so well to even removing the, the vein, the placenta, and the seeds. There are certain chilies that are just so spicy that you can't really run interference. Like a chili de arbol, you can remove that internal vein, but it's still going to be wildly, wildly well, spicy. Hab habanero? A habanero sure. is another good example. It's what, hard to mitigate. One of the fascinating things, because there's chilies in so many cuisines, but I think one of the things that really sets Mexico apart is that Chilies in, in Mexican cooking are food as opposed to just something you add to things to make them spicy. It's an actual vegetable that you're going to eat large amounts of to nourish yourself. So a lot of the techniques are built to actually mitigate that heat or, or remove it or, or temper it or balance it in some way. Some cases the chilies are stuffed and eat that way. Sure. But, you know, the Wajio chili is like the workhorse chili, and it's not really spicy at all. I mean, every once in a while you'll get something with a little bit of heat, but, you know, that'll bulk something up, and then you'll add a chili that has a little bit of heat to it to kind of bring a little bit more spark to the flavor. Now, Alex mentioned that he had an epiphany when he had a fresh-made tortilla. So uh, do we have to make fresh-made tortillas in our homes? Can I, I just buy that stuff in the supermarket? Um, I'm going to say that you have to. <laughs> I'm going to say that you have to, and there's um, – there's physical reasons to this. I mean, a tortilla, a corn tortilla is water and corn, nixtamalized corn, and that's it. There's, there is no sugar. There is no gluten. There is no humectant of any kind keeping that, that creation soft and supple. So, again, it's like 
I don't know how to describe it. It's the difference between having sushi rice that's still warm with a great piece of fish on it handed to you or eating it off of a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. So I have to go out and buy masa harina? Um, Ideally, you would buy masa from a tortilleria. Um, If you're in Manhattan, you can buy it from one of my places. Um, The the second and not as good thing but still better than buying a a, a cold store-bought tortilla would be to buy masa harina. It's It's an instantized masa product that you simply add water to, and then you'll have masa. You'll have reconstituted masa. And texturally and flavor-wise, that's still better than buying some factory-made thing that you're reheating. And then do I need a tortilla press? You do need a tortilla press, um, which are inexpensive. I think you could probably— There are plastic ones, right? There's plastic ones. I don't recommend the plastic ones. You should really get the cast iron ones so that you have a little bit more power behind it. Yeah. They're heavy. For a home cook, they'll last a lifetime. I'm pretty sure you could get one on Amazon if you looked. And honestly, I mean, one of the most important things that you can actually— buy or just have on hand or hack in some way is a a holder for your corn tortillas. We spent an incredibly nerdy amount of time trying to figure out ways to store warm tortillas so that they retain their original cooking heat, um, you know, to the tune of uh, thermocouples inserted into in between tortillas and monitoring the way that their temperature dropped every 15 minutes. And we actually, um, we found uh, this thing, it's like an oven mitt that we bought on Amazon for like $3 or mm-hmm. something. And we bought it because it had these extremely racist dancing chilies and sombreros on it. And we mm-hmm. thought that it was a joke and that we were going to make fun of it. And it is actually the single great thing that we discovered. <laughs> it keeps tortillas so warm, and we highly recommend it. We actually include a photo of it in the book because we love it so much. Now, you mentioned earlier that Tacos al Pastor, your favorite taco on the planet, and we posted your recipe for Tacos al Pastor on our website, uh, re- also recipes for adobos, uh, salsa roja, and raw salsa verde, uh, which are included. Um, many of the tacos... I use ingredients that are common in Mexico, like squash blossoms. Um, how, but how would they be eaten in a traditional taco? A squash blossom? Yeah. Um, well, which, squa- which can grow in your in a backyard right here in New Ab- York. Absolutely. And squash blossoms are one of those special things for me because when we see them at the farmer's market here, we think of them as a flower and we think of them as precious because they're a flower. Whereas squash blossoms in Mexico are handled with all the... You know, they're, they're, it's like spinach. It's like any other green. So you're you're simply going to wilt them down with some good lard and some chilies, and you're going to stuff them into a quesadilla, and it's the best thing ever. What are some of your favorite non-traditional taco fillings? Uh, in the in the book, you mentioned you have pastrami. Yes, um, pastrami came from our desire to um, say, well, what's what could we inject that's New York City into a tortilla? And we started riffing on what are those iconic New York City foodstuffs. And the the conversation went to, like, well, if a tourist was here, they'd have to visit Katz's, right? And they'd have to get that piled-high pastrami sandwich. And we did it. We put pastrami on a tortilla, and I actually think it makes a really good taco. It works in so many different things. There's a Chinese restaurant that makes pastrami egg rolls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's Kung Pao pastrami at Mission Chinese. Yep. I mean, that that actually is a great example, I think, of – something that we were talking about earlier in terms of finding ways to cook food that feels true to this environment in New York City while connecting it to Mexican culture because it's cooked in the manner of carnitas. It's actually quite a similar preparation in this particular recipe. Um, And so that was a way of sort of imagining what would happen if Mexican colonists set up shop Hmm. on the Lower East Side in New York City and around the turn of the century. Like we imagine that this is what they would cook. 
carnitas are a staple of Mexican cuisine, mm-hmm. and you have recipes here. But uh, what about, uh, can we eat tacos in, for breakfast? Can we eat it for them for dessert as well? Of course. Would we I be mean, using all the same corn shell? Yeah, I mean, like, look, I think that, we, okay, when you think of a corn tortilla, you think of Mexican cooking. Um, I think there's another great way to think about it, too. It's a, it's a delicious, healthy, fat-free, whole-grain product. It's gluten-free, so, too. Isn't yeah, it? so it with some eggs and beans and maybe some sautéed greens, I couldn't think of a more delicious and healthy way to start the day. It's also incredibly versatile. Sure, you know? absolutely. So what kind of dessert do you serve as a taco? So we actually did very few desserts in the book because the book is about tacos and it had to be a taco. Um, one idea that we, we took, which we actually utilize a flour tortilla for in the book, is um, an idea on a, an after-school snack for kids in Spain. There's Spanish influence in Mexico, so we decided to go beyond that and say, well, what about pan con chocolate? So a really good piece of toast with a piece of couverture, sprinkling of olive oil and sea salt. And we took that exact idea, and all we did is replace the bread for a flour tortilla. You could also use fruit fillings, can't you? You Absolutely. could put strawberries in and make a strawberry tortilla. We do. We, well, do, we actually do. Mm. We, we, we do natas, which is like um, milk skin, um, where you're sort of constantly harvesting the sort of skin that rises to the top when you're slowly um, heating milk, which takes forever, but it is incredibly, incredibly, it's essentially clotted cream. Um, and we do that with strawberries and the, a little bit of lemon balm or, mi- or mint. And that is actually, that's actually one of my favorite tacos in the book. It's really lovely. Thank you both so much for being on our show for this discussion of tacos on today's Please Explain. Jordana Rothman, Alex Stupak, their book, Tacos, Recipes and Provocations, published by Clarkson Potter.